Welcome to the Off Street Podcast featuring Adam Reiner and Sean Dan. Off Street contains general information that is not suitable for everyone and contains certain forward-looking statements of future possibilities that due to known and unknown risks and other uncertainties and factors may differ materially from actual results. As such, there is no guarantee that any views and opinions expressed herein will come to pass. Off Street is presented for informational purposes and nothing contained herein should be construed as a solicitation to buy or sell any security or as an offer to provide investment, tax, or legal advice. Additionally, this communication contains information derived from third-party sources. Although we believe these sources to be reliable, we make no representations as to their accuracy or completeness. Adam and Sean are employees of Marshall Financial Group, Inc., a registered investment advisor. For additional information about the firm, including its services and fees, send for the firm's disclosure brochure or visit advisorinfo.sec.gov. All right, Sean, it is Tuesday, January 9th, 2.30 in the afternoon, our first actual podcast recording of 24. Yes, 2024 so far has been a doozy for people who are constantly looking for content to discuss. Yes, lots of content out there. In the finance world and non-finance world. And we'll get to the finance world stuff, but just in the non-finance world, for those, I don't know if you've seen any of these. Did you see the guy who got naked and jumped into the Bass Pro Shops pool? I, I saw the story. We had, we had that, followed by the guy that got stuck in the urn. You, the you showed me this one this morning. That was, <laughs> this was funny. For those who didn't see it, I think just like a drunk Southern guy, he got into basically like a big ceramic planter Yes. to be funny. And then couldn't get out. And from like the waist down, he's just like in this planter. Yes, I believe it took place in Alabama. <laughs> they had to they had to chisel him out. And then just this morning, hot off the presses, I guess in Brooklyn, they found a, a tunnel and cave system below a synagogue. Did, did they say why? Nope. I, I, I haven't. <laughs> That's a important piece. I, of I haven't context. read too much. I've seen like some videos and like, but it looks like they, they had dug out some tunnels. They had like cut out sewer grates. So who knows what, what that is. But 2024 coming out swinging. Maybe with the tunnels, it just started off as a couple, couple of guys digging a hole. And guys being dudes. It's just, just evolved from there. I think it is one of those like innate like male tendencies to just – it's like you get to the beach and you want to dig a hole, yeah, right? It's, it's in our DNA. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what that is, but like there's something about like digging holes, digging tunnels that just like makes sense. Yeah. You just look at that and you're like, that's, that's awesome. I want to do that. It's it's a guy thing. So who who can blame him, really? Yeah. You know, I look forward <laughs> to finding out why. But also over the weekend, a new fear was on a lot, yeah, Sean. the story of the weekend. Especially for me as a window sitter yes. on an airplane. So if you didn't see it, I'm sure you have at this point. Shortly after taking off, Alaska Airlines Flight 1282 had to make an emergency landing after a plugged emergency door. That's a new term for me. Just flew off. Just part of the side of the plane just gone. Ripped off. Exposed a large hole in the fuselage of the airplane. It was almost like for those passengers sitting nearby, they were on a skydiving plane. Just part of the side of the plane exposed. It was surreal. And it sounds like there wasn't anyone sitting in the seat directly next to where it got ripped out, thankfully. How's that for luck? Yeah, and somehow no one got hurt. Or no one got seriously hurt, and it sounds like no one died. Which is a miracle when there's just an open part of a commercial Crazy. flight, tens of thousands of feet in the air. But this happened on a Boeing 737 Max 9 model. It sounds like they've they've grounded all of those models at Alaska Airlines and other airlines to do safety checks. It sounds like at United Airlines, they've already discovered that some of them, some of those types of planes had some loose bolts yes, that needed to some be. Some bolts needed a little tightening. To. So we had Boeing... 
the fuselage maker, Spirit Aero Systems, Alaska Air, all of their stocks fell yesterday. Just horrifying. Yes, it's it's been a pretty tough run for Boeing going back to 2018. Yeah, I believe a couple, maybe one or two, Boeing Max eights crashed after because of a sensor issue, and then more recently, somewhat ironically, they asked the FAA for an exemption on their Max from safety standards related to an anti-ice system. Jeez, and. They also told airlines to check for a loose bolt on the rudder system of the 737 MAX. For those who don't know, pretty much every commercial passenger jet that you see at a major airport in the U.S. is made by one of two companies. It's made by Boeing and it's made by Airbus. Boeing is the bigger of the two. So there's basically two players in town. One for the past five years has just been known for screwing up over and over. Yep. It's not very comfortable. I... I think that's like a pretty common fear of flying. Even if you're not afraid of it, it sometimes you don't like to think about it. But loose bolts, doors flying off, it's, scary. it's just horrifying. When you get on an airplane, there is a lot of faith and trust you place in people to oh, get yeah. you to where you're trying to go. People who built the people, planes. People who designed the planes, to those who built it, to those who are staffing and flying it that day. But, yeah. And two, Boeing's obviously getting a lot of the flack. I don't know what the protocols are, but I would think Alaska Airlines, I'm surprised they're not getting more flack because I guess they had identified on this plane the prior three flights, it sounds like a fail light had popped on, uh, something with their auto pressurization, like something was off with the pressure in the plane, which, yeah, obviously now we know why. And their solution was, uh, we're just not going to fly this plane to Hawaii. We're just not going to have this go on long flights over water, which if a plane... It's not safe enough to fly where it can't land for a couple hours. That's a yeah. little concerning to me. You know, flying to Hawaii, once you leave the California oh, yeah. coast and you watch it get tinier and tinier it's in nothing. the distance, it is a helpless feeling. Looking at that map on the plane and just seeing you are a dot smack dab over the middle of the ocean, knowing if anything goes wrong, there's nowhere to go. Yeah. Before we recorded, you brought up a good point, though. This is a great example of... If you're someone who likes to invest in individual stocks, the idiosyncratic company-specific risk when you invest in a single name. Oh, yeah. Great, great example. There used to be the old saying, if it ain't Boeing, I ain't going. And Boeing stock certainly has gone nowhere over the past five, six years at this point. Mm -hmm. Down 23% since the beginning of 2018. Compare that to price returns, so not including dividends on the S&P which is up 77% over that same time period. And it's just one of those things. When you invest in an individual company, events like this or events like the sensor issues can really derail a single company's performance and thus have an impact on your own investing portfolio. And no matter how confident you are, no matter how you've crunched the numbers or feel like you got to read on a company, this is one of those black swan events. You can't predict a door or a plug, whatever it is, getting ripped off the side of a jet and the stock falling the next day. Um, That's right. And Boeing is not an insignificant company. It's the 10th largest component of the Dow. Oh, yeah. So so when you own it just through the Dow, it's only one of 30 companies. It's a lot different. One of one. A lot different, for sure. I will say one company, before we go into the next topic, that may have gotten some positive press here. Okay. It looks like two iPhones fell out of the plane at 16,000 feet and survived the fall, still intact, still in working condition. Still in airplane mode. That's impressive, <laughs> considering I can't even drop it 
as I'm getting out of the car <laughs> right? and it hits like the driveway. That's what I'm saying. What what is that? How does that work? Three feet versus sixteen thousand. Kind of to the other side of this, Sean. Also, a company specific story. I'd call it over the weekend, though, just for a company that's done very well since 2018. Elon Musk was in the news, probably for reasons he wouldn't want to be in the news. Yeah, the Wall Street Journal put out this report sounds like elon musk's drug use recreational drug use is starting to become a concern among executives and board members at some of those companies that you mentioned spacex uh twitter tesla etc sounds like musk has been known at least in the past to allegedly use lsd cocaine ecstasy and mushrooms on a recreational basis and then ketamine on both a prescribed and recreational basis um and especially when you think about these past 18 months very erratic behavior from him attitude seems like it's shifting i think people are starting to question are the drugs playing into this could this be hurting his health he's responsible for a lot of money and jobs yeah is it drugs lack of sleep something else going on but it was a pretty long piece done by the journal yeah you don't get many seven page printed articles yeah this is very much about key man risk especially for companies that have done so well and spacex has government contracts and there are their own standards that they have to abide by to maintain their standing for those contracts, such Absolutely. as a drug-free workplace. I mean, you think about the uproar. I think it was 2018 when he went on the Joe Rogan podcast and had like, you know, he smoked weed on camera and, and that. And there was such uproar about it. That seems like peanuts compared to, I don't know, if he's running around and partying on some of these drugs in random countries, it sounds like, at least according to the article. It's pretty dangerous for a guy who it says the market value of his companies all sum over a trillion. Yes. Tens of thousands of people working at these companies. But even for investors, like Tesla, the publicly traded, SpaceX isn't publicly traded. Tesla is. And it's become a very large component of, of indices. Look at the, the S&P. I believe it's number nine in the S&P right now. So if anything were to happen to, to Elon, could be bad for investors. It's obviously bad for him and the employees of these companies as well. But you think of what, Matthew Perry. Also, I believe cause of his death was ketamine. So there, like, there is some cause for concern. It's one of those tough things, too, because you think about major athletes, major celebrities, company leaders. There, It is a definite truth that if you're big enough, powerful enough, smart enough, some rules don't apply to you. You get away with a lot more than other people but there comes a breaking point there comes a point where it's just there's too much on the line i don't care how big of a genius how great of a business person you are where you got to cut ties and must behavior you got to think we're barreling towards that even if we're not close like just last night i mean we had prepped a little bit for this yesterday we, we come in this morning last night musk tweeted quote mark cuban is a racist and then kind of insinuated that he wanted to fight him in a UFC-style cage match. Then he do the same thing with He uh, did it with Zuckerberg. Zuckerberg. Yeah. It like, wasn't real. But it's like, I don't know. It was cute almost with the Zuckerberg thing. Now it's just like annoying and you're just calling people racist. Like he's worried about defamation but doing that. So it's like, I don't know. At some point, something's got to break. So lots of chatter over the past several weeks about perhaps a Bitcoin ETF being approved by the SEC. So there are some products out there now that invest in Bitcoin futures. This one would actually buy the coins themselves in an ETF wrapper, potentially making them more accessible to investors. Though before they've even been approved, it is a, at least the appearance of it is a race to the bottom in fees. Yes, it's very intense, very intense this week. 
Um, there's speculation that approval for these spot ETFs could come out any day now and that they could go live. But providers were supposed to make, be making their final tweaks to their offerings to put out like their prospectuses, stuff like stuff of that nature. Um, and just in the past two days, several have been editing those proposals to make their fees lower and lower. At the high end, we have Grayscale, who's looking at, they're proposing about a 1.5% fee for their ETF. And down at the bottom, Bitwise, just this morning, lowered theirs down to 0.20%, so 20 basis points. So that's kind of your range. There's a lot of people in the middle. More and more, though, we're seeing people get down to that kind of 20 basis point range um, with really no signs of stopping. And I believe Bitwise was one of the first out there. Uh, they have they have a separate vehicle waiting to convert to an ETF. But if these funds, if these ETFs do what they say they're going to do and track the price of Bitcoin relatively well, so low tracking error, why would you pay 1% for an ETF versus 20 basis points? It's exactly, I think that's exactly it. And I think that may be the differentiator. Like, we'll see how well they actually track. I could see, especially something like Bitcoin, there being a pretty big tracking error. But yeah, theoretically, there's no reason to hold anything other than the cheapest if they do what they say they're going to do. Save, like, credit risk, as long as you trust these companies, yes, right? they've reached a size of critical mass. Yes, exactly. Like but another question, I guess, off of that is, is there any reason, if you're just someone interested in the speculative part of Bitcoin, you just want to ride the price swings, it feels like at this point there'd be no reason to hold the coin itself. You're only opening yourself to more risk, right? Like hacking If you just wanted or, to trade? Yes. I think the probably the most efficient way to do it is through the ETF. Yeah. Because, I mean, if you're trying to hold an individual Bitcoin, you got to worry about if you got to open up an account somewhere, FTX blow up, you could get hacked. Whereas an ETF, it's like, all right, well, if I go to one of these guys and I can just get liquidated like that if I wanted to, it feels a lot better. Okay, just think of the FTX example. The premier company in the space, right? And then they they turned out to be a fraud yeah. for all intents and purposes, right? If you can purchase it, through an sec approved product from investment companies there's you're taking something that lacks a lot of regulation and making it more regulated just by the sec approving the product yeah i agree so kind of transitioning away from bitcoin here another interesting article we came across that i think is interesting and then also a good personal finance discussion is around bill gates and the story talked about bill gates at the time that Microsoft IPO'd, he owned a 49% stake in the company. And the what ifs of if he held on to that stake, if he never was diluted, if he never sold and diversified, he'd be a trillionaire at this point. This is, this actually ties in nicely to the company-specific risk stories that we talked exactly, about. Exactly, exactly. So Microsoft's market cap today is about $2.8 trillion. If he had held, he'd be well into the one, $1 to $2 trillion range, which is 5 to 6 times more than the richest person on earth today he'd be head and shoulders the richest man in the world today he actually only owns about 1.38 percent of the company and his net worth is estimated to be about 118 billion so only. we're talking only only yeah. 118 a, billion. a fraction it feels like he already has one capitalism <laughs> like, <laughs> that was my reaction of like okay if we're gonna like feel bad for a dude as 118 billion do you think bill gates feels bad do you think he wakes up ever and is like man if only I'd held and become a trillionaire. <laughs> I have a feeling that thought has probably never crossed his mind. Not once. And didn't he do what most founders do? 
they monetize part of it at some point. Yes. They, they talked about immediately at IPO, it sounds like he went from a 49 to 45% stake. And then over time, it's been a slow diversification within there. And actually, he owns a decent amount of his net worth is now in Berkshire Hathaway. It sounds like he, he likes what Warren Buffett's doing okay. over there. But I don't know. It feels like prudent financial management to me. Yes. I, even a bit of a fallacy in that argument, too, that you could just, if he just held it and never sold, it would have been great because there was a period of time where Microsoft underperformed. Yes. Quite I, significantly versus I, the S&P. I looked back at it. Microsoft had a drawdown where it didn't reach new highs that lasted from 1999. It hit a peak value. It did not reach that value again until 2016 on a price return basis. It had At the peak, it was in a drawdown of about 75%. That happened at the global financial crisis. And from that decade period, from like 2000 to the end of 2009, it had a return of about negative 47%. So like we're sitting here assuming too, uh, Microsoft is always destined to be this behemoth, almost $3 trillion company. Why wouldn't he just like stick it out? There's a lot of volatility. Going back to holding a specific company, there's a lot of volatility that comes along with it, no matter how great it is. These things happen with the Amazons and the Apples and the Facebooks especially being in that tech sector. They have these big drawdowns. And if you already have $100 billion, is your life going to be any different if you have 200 or 300 no. Probably not. No. He can his four percent rule is fine. Yes. Do you have numbers? <laughs> if you, you want to hear, I did run the numbers on that. If you want to hear those, yes, let's hear them. So, Bill Gates, we've we've talked about the four percent rule a little bit in the past. Roughly speaking, a lot of people say in retirement, if you take out about four percent of your portfolio a year, that usually can sustain itself without drawing down principal, without drawing down your capital. With one hundred and eighteen billion dollars, if he followed the four percent rule. That would mean he could take out about $4.7 billion a year. So per day, his per day allowance for spending in retirement would be almost $13 million. And in theory, how, that wouldn't, how that could wouldn't you draw even down. spend that much a day without <laughs> it, giving it away? I, I don't know. Like, I, I tried like there to, was a movie about that in the 80s. Was there? I think it was like a Richard Pryor movie. Where he would get an inheritance, but he had to spend so much okay, money. Okay, I've heard of that. I've never seen it. Yeah, I can't, can't think of the title, but... But you think about what are big things people spend on? Yachts, houses, all those things. I looked it up. The most expensive house ever sold in the U.S. was Ken Griffin bought a $240 million penthouse in New York City in 2019. So $240 million. That amounts to 0.2% of Gates' entire net worth. I'm I'm, I'm still held up on the the price of that house in Manhattan. $240 million. If he needs to sell that. Who can buy it? There's only so many <laughs> Again, people in the world. Who billionaire can buy it. math. I don't think they care about thinking about future future buyers. But it's a conversation too. I think it's relevant for even like the average person or, or not the top 0.01 percenters of when you think about retirement. It's not always about like how do I maximize to get to that highest number. It's okay. What number gets me to a place where I can live comfortably or or live the retirement I want to live or retire at a certain age like. Those questions get tough when you get, especially close to retirement. It's like, is it about the number or is it about the lifestyle you want to live? And like having a gut check on that is important. And I think it also brings in like behavioral finance to a certain extent. Like this article would have never been written during those early 2000s years. Like when you add hindsight bias to it all, it's like, of course, you should have oh, yes. just held it. Yes. But I have a feeling 
if they wrote this article in 2008, 2009, it should have been, man, Bill Gates should have sold more stock. Think in the the dot-com bubble era is when they peaked, like, 99 and had that drawdown until 2016. Think of how many founders probably IPO'd, had tens of millions of dollars, and didn't diversify. And their companies eventually fizzled out, and who knows how much money they had left. And for all of those people, diversifying would have made sense. If we find the one person who diversifying didn't make sense for, and then are like, well, you shouldn't diversify. You should like believe in your company and just hold diamond hands. Yeah. Uh, I think there's a million lessons that can be taken from this, but I love this story just because of that. Like it's it's an interesting thought experiment for sure. So related, unrelated here, not to keep going with this Microsoft thing. But is that is like that the American dream of entrepreneurship? The Microsoft model? You start a business in a garage. Oh yeah. You like you go public, you become a billionaire. Like if you had to like chalk it like chart it out, storyboard it any better. Like could you do it any better than Microsoft? All those tech companies are great. Like Apple and Microsoft's known as like starting your parents' garage. Facebook obviously Zuckerberg started out of a right. dorm room that may even be more romanticized because yeah. it's like just gritty and stuff, but yeah, like Americans love stories like that. It's it is the, like the classic American dream of going from a garage to, I don't know, being a hundred billionaire. Oh man, hard transition here on the American dream. This has to do with housing, Sean. Another another thought experiment of sorts. Yes, <laughs> but you know, I I think we've done two podcasts this year. Both have involved Microsoft. We talked about Steve Ballmer last week, right? Yes, and dividends, and here's here's Bill Gates, but. Besides the point. So as you know, or may not know, home inventory is very low right now. Existing home inventory is very low. At the end of November, there was about 1.13 million homes listed for sale, which is well below the average since 2000, about 2.265 million. So with that said, Sean, would you buy a home where a murder took place? This this article threw me for a loop. I, I think it depends. I think it depends. So, like, give people, like, context. There was, this was a Wall Street Journal article. This was a was Wall written. Street Journal article. Yeah. And the title was, The house was charming, but came with a catch. A murder took place there. Stigmatized properties pose challenges for buyers and sellers, especially when the crime is particularly notorious. So, the article begins with the story of a lawyer, I believe, who sold his home, was looking to buy a fixer-upper, found a home listed for 250000 well below the price of other homes in that neighborhood which was around 450 he went saw the home it was kind of decrepit it was owned by habitat for humanity he asks the realtor why is it so cheap and i said he a hoarder lived there um so he made a cash offer then couldn't resist he googled the address and it turned out that a man there killed his mother and sister in the home and stored the bodies in a pool in the backyard so he ended up withdrawing his offer on this home and as it turns out we've there are only three states where sellers have to disclose if a murder took place in the home though they all have varying rules california south dakota and alaska and then nevada nevada has a wrinkle in there that um unless the death was caused by a defect of the property you yeah. don't have to disclose yeah it. something i never considered and it is interesting especially in today's constrained environment very hard to get a good deal on a house it was interesting they interviewed some people it sounded like it was pretty split some people were being like i would never touch a house like this other people being like 
it's not it, it doesn't matter to me it has nothing to do with me and if i can get a good deal so be it it is an interesting thought i think it is one of those things where it depends like if it's something gruesome and grisly and i feel like there's a difference between a murder and a death in the home very different yes very different like a, a death like doesn't concern me and you even talked about some houses are famous for murders they in the thing they talked about the lizzie borden house where the manson murders were committed people go there as like tourist attractions which is like a whole other thing in the article they said there was one homeowner who had to change his address because a notorious murder had taken place there and he just didn't want sightseers coming by the property but you know the article also talked about it's challenging for buyers when evaluating this property do they want to purchase a home like that but there's also challenges for the seller which is often families of these people who had some type of traumatic loss and they need to sell this asset for various reasons and they just have a hard time doing it and getting market value for their properties yeah and they talked a little bit in the article about the morality of even if you don't have to disclose it should you disclose it is it wrong to not disclose it and then the person buys the house and feels deceived i think all like very valid points i i'd want to know if i was a buyer right like yeah wouldn't you I would want to know. I think even in the article, the one prospective buyer had said, how specific of a question do I have to ask about these properties? Um, it's not on the, your normal checklist. Yes, like your realtor is probably not going to be like, hey, make sure to ask like about the plumbing and, oh, if there was like a murder there. Yes. They so said there's like some ways that realtors could try to get around answering the question directly, kind of like implying that something happened there and weaving it up to you to go look it up for yourself. I think that's what prompted him to say how specific does he have to get does he have to ask if there's radiation in the backyard did they don't radio radioactive waste in the pool now i'm talking myself out of it now i don't know if i'd do it just it's almost like ghosts right it's like bad bad vibes bad, bad aura it it's is something that always would probably be in the back of your mind like i'm in this room like what's happened here in the past i think i just i think i talked myself yeah, out of I it i feel like you'd almost need to buy the property knock down the structure and rebuild though that kind of defeats the purpose of trying to get get a deal on the property unless you really like the lot but interesting and weird questions you never thought you'd ask yourself in a, maybe a normal housing environment but well i mean that's what happens times. when supply is tight supplies are tight for sure which we will go to uncorrelated quickly though i just speaking of supply being tight have you been keeping up with the stanley cup craze the like gigantic mug water bottle things we talked a little bit about it last week. We are, we are now ago. a Stanway Cup household after the holidays. Yeah. Not me, but... Interesting little tidbit I found. So you know how Crocs have had a revitalization yep. in the past, like, five, seven years? It looks like the same chief marketing officer who led the charge at Crocs is the current chief marketing officer at Stanley. So this person's good at their job. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> but interesting, interesting arc for Stanway Cups. There was an article written by the New York Times in 22 of the coming, the craze of these Stanley Cups. And really, it was, it was a few mommy bloggers and social media influencers that started this whole thing. Like, they post photos with their cups. I think Stanley at one point pulled the inventory off their website. These women got a hold of Stanley, said, bring them back. Like, if we just change the coloring. We can market these women to women selling and it's worked and it's it's amazing. It's pretty incredible. They they talked about that in one article I found of like word of mouth and social media buzz has been invaluable for them. 
And it's really been this like super organic thing of mommy bloggers leading the charge. Yes. But we're at the point now where you you go online and you see videos of they have to have security guards next to the uh, the displays. Yeah, you were telling me about that Starbucks story today. Well, yeah, like I saw that over the weekend of people lining up outside of stores and then cops by the displays. But this morning it looks like someone jumped over a counter at a Starbucks and grabbed a box of them and tried to run out like bystanders tackled them. Like, people are going crazy. It reminds me of, like, Jordan retro releases when I was in high school. Jordan retro shoes, that was a big thing. I know, like, older generations talk about Beanie Babies and stuff like that that had this craze about them, limited supply. But, I mean, good on that CML. They're doing something right. It's pretty pretty amazing. I'd love to know how it's different than a Yeti or other insulated mug. I would think probably nothing. But... I think it's more of a fashion statement yes. at this point, right? And like, the article from 2022, one of the women said they like the handle that it comes with, maybe the pastel colors. Yeah, good on them. Doing something right. All right. So let's switch it over to Uncorrelated. I'd say we have a food theme to Uncorrelated this week, Sean. The first one involves tuna. Tokyo's top tuna for the new year sells for nearly $800,000. That is equivalent to 114.2 million yen. I believe they said it was the the fourth highest since records began in 1999. Yes, fourth highest, and then it was the highest price paid for a fish since the COVID-19 pandemic. It was about $1,500 a pound for a 525-pound fish. And it sounds like in Tokyo, the first fish of the year, Bloomberg called it, it's, it's considered auspicious. It's considered a lucky or special or very desirable fish and so it was it looks like it was a michelin starred sushi restaurant bought it and i'm sure it's going to be a special menu item of their sushi Char- from that first Charger fish premium. of the year for sure so i looked up japan's cpi report and tuna fish is actually down negative 8.2 percent year over year there you go through the end of november all right so surprised to see that it hit a record maybe, but maybe you can get sushi deals elsewhere perhaps yeah. a lot of money a single fish you know there's that show on Discovery Channel, TLC, like Tuna Wars. I think that's what it's called. Wicked right? Tuna. Wicked Tuna. Wicked Tuna. Yeah. And those. They don't get anywhere near that know. price. <laughs> they get like $10 a pound and yeah. they're like awesome. Yeah. You hear them say like something starts with a 20. I got high five. But anyway. So health and wellness is a common New Year's resolution. We again touched on that last week. So some people can wonder what's the best time to eat dinner? And the answer, at least according to this article, is four hours before bedtime is the best time to eat dinner. So peak dinner time in America is about 6.19 p.m. This was very interesting and something that, like, I'd never considered before maybe a year or two ago. But it is pretty crazy reading the signs behind it. Yes. It's very bad for you to eat close to dinner or close to going to bed for a lot of reasons. They talk about when sugar spikes happen closer to bedtime, the body has difficulty regulating blood sugar. It has difficulty with like releasing a hormone that lets you know you're eating too much, so you're more prone to overeating. All these sorts of things. The quality of your sleep is a yes, lot worse. Talks about hormonal fluctuations, depending if you eat too late before you go to bed, all kinds of stuff. I, a couple of years ago, I was wearing one of those fitness bands, a Whoop, a Whoop oh, band yeah. is what yep. it was called. And they would track your sleep scores. And it was noticeable if I ate too close to bed or if I drank alcohol close to bed, it t- tanks the quality of your sleep. You're like you're breathing faster. Your heart rate's higher. Yep. All that sort of stuff. And it is maybe it was placebo, but I, di- I would f- wake up feeling worse. 
I believe I agree. I agree with all that. I thought it was interesting in this article. They also talked about hunter-gatherers went to sleep around 9.30 or 10 o'clock, which is shocking to me. Why is that shocking? It feels really late. It's considering it said that the dinner ritual began because they would come back and they'd start the fire as the sun set, and that's the time they would eat. And then there's a lot of dark after that. Maybe not during the summer, but this time of year, certainly. I struggle to stay awake till 10 o'clock. How do you think they knew that? Hunter, how did they, they know the hunter-gatherers went to bed around 9.30? I, I think they're <laughs> just guessing. <laughs> but, yeah. But they said hunter-gatherers or even farmers would walk 16 to 17,000 steps a day. Our George would love that stat. Yes. Well, I, I don't get close to that, I feel like, most days. No. They said the average American now walks just 3,000 to 4,000 steps a day. I try to target a little more than 10,000. If you have children, though, they said you don't really need to worry about four hours for kids setting your dinner time before they go to bed. Young children don't have to go to bed earlier than adults. They said their metabolism is just so much higher than adults and they're more active in the evening that their blood sugar isn't affected as much. Interesting. So they said go by the adult's bedtime, not the children's bedtime. Interesting. Using that four-hour rule, but they also say the best dinner time is the one you can stick to. Okay. So how All about right. that? Classic. Be consistent. Be consistent. So CPI this week, we get some bank earnings on Friday. Maybe that'll help set the tone for the rest of the beginning of the year here in January. Yeah, really. I think we're in that point you mentioned it the other day, kind of setting the tone for the year. We don't really know what we're rooting for when economic data comes out. We don't really have a sense yet of how the market's going to trade day to day. So still, I think we're just getting our bearings this year and, and kind of watching to see, you know, how, how do we set the tone for 2024? Right. What, what's this market going to be about? Stronger economy or Fed cuts? Where's the emphasis going to be? Until next week. Until next week. See you then.